the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This week's The Interview is brought to you by AndrewandTodd.com. AndrewandTodd.com are the world's best lenders for real estate. They are with Sierra Pacific Mortgage. You can call them at 888 888-888-1172, 888-888-1172. And please do, no matter what your lending needs are, andrewandtodd.com. And now welcome to this new edition of The Interview with Hugh Hewitt. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. I'm joined now by Dr. Michael Oren. He's in Israel. Good morning, Michael. How are you? Good morning. Hi, Hugh. Uh, you know, you had a bit of unlucky uh, timing. Every Israeli did. But you, your new novel, To All Who Call in Truth, I think it published this week, didn't it? It did. <laughs> <laughs> That's not very good for a novel in Israel, is it? Well, maybe the American public no, well. will, will do To All Who Call in Truth. Uh, maybe you'll start another one when you're in your bomb shelter. What is the situation this morning? situation is tense. Um, we had a couple of rockets fired at Tel Aviv last night. Um, this morning, steady rocket barrages in the south. But I can tell you honestly, Israelis are mostly concerned with what's going on inside Israel. Um, the internecine violence between uh, Arabs and Jews, the burning of synagogues, um, the lynching uh, of people. It, it, it's very, very disturbing. 370-plus people were arrested last night as riots surged throughout the country, primarily young people. It's, it's not unlike sort of the Antifa moments we've had in the United States, or is it? Is it more widespread than that? It, it, it's also widespread, but I think it's deeper. These are, these are deep cultural and religious differences. But what's disturbing about it is that this is actually occurring in the cities that are mixed. So I live in a mixed city. I live in the city of Jaffa. And uh, you know my, my neighbors are Arabs, and my I go to Mohammed the Greengrocer, and he tells me he's the state of Israel that he's the, he's the freest Arab in the Middle East because he lives in Israel. He tells me this. I don't know if he says it publicly, but he says it to me. And then to have this, uh, you know, this very delicate and long-constructed fabric of interaction, of coexistence, break down and break down overnight in such a violent way is terribly traumatic for all of us. Now, I've seen some Israeli commentators uh, urge people to remember in the world that most Israeli Arabs and most Israeli Jews get along fine, and that the rioters from the Arab population and the supremacists from the Jewish population are tiny minorities. Do you believe that's true? I know that's true. I know that's true. But sometimes a little minority can make a very big noise. And, um, and it, it, even in a sense, just, it's some of the scenes we've witnessed have just been, you know, you remember the events of last summer in the United States, how traumatic it was. Um, and it is it has touched a very raw nerve here, and um, and it's made people very distrustful of coexistence. Now, during the riots of last summer and during the insurrection at the Capitol on January sixth, television news could not get enough of it in the United States. Is Israel's uh, television station covering both the attacks, which I assume, and the riots wall to wall? Uh, yeah, we have around the clock coverage uh, on all channels on, on whenever there's a national emergency like this. But, you know, you can be covering a riot in a, in a town. And if there's a barrage 
in, in Tel Aviv or in Ashkelon or Ashdod, the TV is going to immediately switch to that barrage. That's going to take precedence over whatever protests or demonstrations of violence are going on inside the cities. Now, I, I want to bring to your attention and get your comment on two American stories that are, of course, subsidiary to what's going on in the attack on Israel, but nevertheless fascinating. The 25 House Democrats called on Anthony Blinken to condemn East Jerusalem evictions. In the middle of an attack on Israel, we have 25 hard left members of the Democratic Party calling on a Democratic administration to condemn Israel. What do you make of that, Ambassador Oren? Are you surprised? No. <laughs> I'm not the least bit surprised. I'm surprised. I'm surprised it's only condemning and not like cutting off aid or, or you know, condemning us in the Security Council or in the ICC. Um, you know, you're dealing with that that very progressive wing uh, of the Democratic Party. And, and I got to tell you, honestly, I've been listening to Tony Blinken, you know, and you know that I know him quite well. And we've talked about him a lot on this program. But I have a very high opinion of him. Um, I think that, that, that so far he has withstood this pressure within his own party uh, rather admirably. Now, I don't know how long he's going to continue to, to withstand that pressure because I think we're up against the clock. And the clock is, is a clock that, that monitors the number of Palestinian civilian, civilians killed in Gaza. And I don't know what the number is, but when that, when that number hits, the tone of this administration is probably going to change. And now, they will no longer be able to withstand that pressure from their own progressive wing of the Democratic Party. Now, Prime Minister Netanyahu yesterday rejected the Hamas, quote, peace overture, close quote, and said, we'll have to do in six months what we don't do now. What does that tell you about what his intention is vis-a-vis -vis ground invasion and operations in Gaza? Well, I don't see any preparations for a ground invasion yet. Um, that, that had to be preceded by a major call up of the reserves. Uh, so far, a very limited number of reserves have been called up. A ground operation involves between 50 and 70,000 troops being called up. Um, and we don't have that yet. I think right now, um, Israel feels that it has regained the momentum. Uh, early on, we had, did not have the momentum. It was Hamas that was shooting at Jerusalem. Um, and now Hamas is deeply underground. One by one, the leaders are being picked off. Their infrastructure is being destroyed. And this is all being done uh, from the air, whether by, by aircraft or, or by missiles. And um, I think that uh, Israel now feels that the, the time, for the time, time for the time being is on our side. But now, Shin Bet. Again, because that number. Yeah, Shin Bet yesterday announced that uh, several leading Hamas military leaders were dead. Uh, it implied that there had been ground operations by the secret services in Gaza. And, of course, every American who watches Israeli television series think they're superheroes. What is the right. situation there? Is, is Shin Bet operating on the Strip? Well, Shin Bet operates together with uh, special forces. Uh, if you watch Fauda, you see a little bit of that. And, uh, and they, they work in very close uh, coordination. And uh, so I, I'm just now just speculating. They, they knew where these leaders were. It's difficult to hit them from the air, but you can get a, a special unit in there, would be the equivalent of the Israeli equivalent of uh, Team Seal 6, um, Team Seal 6, uh, or Delta Force, and get in and you, you, uh, you give that Hamas official the, the one-way ticket to the next world that he deserves. Um, and then they get out. Um, and I think that uh, our special forces are doing that uh, quite frequently. Yeah, Fauda is really going to get a lot of replays because it's really the only television series, I think, that actually exposed people what life in Gaza might be like. And I don't know if you – as I recall, I once talked to you and you were perched on a tank about to go into Gaza. Have you fought in Gaza? I have fought in Gaza. Um, Gaza is a hellhole. <laughs> That's a word for it. I, I spent many, many months in Gaza. 
I'll tell you one very short story. I was in charge of a, of a small uh, uh, sort of a lookout firebase uh, outside a large uh, refugee camp. And um, at night, we'd open up our sea rations, and around us would be a, a ring of rats, each the size of a dachshund, <laughs> all standing on their hind legs and looking at us. And, and that's what Gaza was like, uh, surrounded by huge rats ready to eat our our sea ration. Very difficult, according to Yoni, who calls our show occasionally, uh, to fight in Gaza, that it's an impossible place to, to try and actually conduct offensive operations because of the IDF's concern for civilian casualties, which is both appropriate and admired by serious people around the world. But it doesn't exactly lend itself to Gaza operations. It's, it's not impossible. It's difficult. It, it, it's, it's labyrinths and alleyways, uh, most of which are unpaved and, you know, with running sores. And every house is a booby trap. And so many of the people we've lost, such as we lost in the 2014 operation, uh, was because these structures are booby trapped. One of the big difficulties we have in fighting in Gaza is also when you, you, know, you fire a tank shell at one house that has an enemy in it, and because these, these buildings in Gaza aren't you know, constructed to any sort of like standard, that the entire block can fall down from the reverberation. And then you end up killing these civilians that you didn't even know were there. Never mind, you know, try to avert. And then moving towards the, the number that will cause the Biden administration to withdraw support. I'm going to talk with Secretary of State Pompeo next hour, former Secretary of State yeah. Pompeo, to ask him, uh, do you notice a, a discernible difference between Trump administration policy and Biden administration policy in confrontations with terrorist organizations? Um, well, I have to only speak about our area of the world. Um, so far, not. I mean, it's still very early on in the game as far as the Biden administration goes. I know that uh, this administration has turned a blind eye to just about everything Iran does, uh, including you know firing missiles at, at American at bases in Iraq that have American soldiers and personnel in it because uh, they so desperately want to renew that JCPOA. That, that's a different topic. Um, seems to me that there's almost nothing that Iran could do that, that could frustrate that or in any way deflate um, administration's intention to renew that agreement. Uh, I hope I'm wrong on that, by the way. I really hope I'm wrong. So right. as of as of Thursday, where do you expect this to go in terms of the military? I want to come back and talk to you about the political situation. But where do you expect it militarily to go over the weekend and into next week? Well, it's, a lot of it depends on whether Hamas is, is willing to begin to throw in the towel. And there were intimations already last night that Hamas was seeking a ceasefire. Um, that's just an intimation, kind of like a trial balloon. Um, we have to see how many and what caliber uh, rockets are left in their arsenal. It seems to me they still have quite a lot of rockets. I mean, they've fired probably about uh, 1,500, but they probably have 15,000. So they have a way to go. Um, and um, we, we will keep pounding them. we we'll keep pounding them again and again and again uh, using uh, penetration bombs that can get at their underground uh, arsenals and their stockpiles and their bunkers. Um, and we will keep picking off their leaders um, at such a time when they'll say, okay, more or less uncle. My fear, though, is that the Hamas is going to try to do something grandiose uh, so they can at least claim that it won this war and then quickly run for a ceasefire. Do you know that um, uh, the rioting can spread? I covered the L.A. riots on the ground in Los Angeles when I was doing television in the 90s, and they can spread and they can accelerate given a presence or a lack of presence of police and security forces. Are you more worried about the riots or Hamas? We're worried about the, we're more worried about the what, riots. 
Would you explain that to the American audience? Because, I, you know, riots happen in the United States fairly regularly, like last summer and, you know, on, on intervals, usually in the summer, having to do with um, events that that spark unrest and now social media accelerates it. Why, why is that more concerning than missiles falling on you? Because the missiles we know how to deal with, whether we take them down with uh, Iron Dome uh, or we blow up the people who are firing them. You know, it takes a few days. Sometimes it takes a few weeks, but we know how to deal with it. And ultimately, we're going to win. We are. This just Hamas cannot win against us. We win. But the riots go to the very fabric that hold this country together. And keep in mind, you know, we have 21 percent uh, Arabs in this country. Um, we're in a very, very rough neighborhood. Uh, and, and Israel coheres. <laughs> I probably in an objective way, it shouldn't cohere. We probably should have fallen apart long ago with all the differences between the religious groups and the right and the left and the ethnic groups. Uh, but we do cohere, and we cohere because our model is a Middle Eastern model. It's not really the American model. Uh, in the Middle East, you know, if you go to Jerusalem, you've been there here. You have an Armenian quarter. You have a Christian quarter, a, a Jewish quarter, a Muslim quarter, right? Yes. We live side by side. And, uh, and we, we, we respect a certain amount of differences. You know, we, the, the American model is a melting pot. Um, our model is more like an apple pie. Yeah, I, I, I tell people I've only been there twice. I'm not Prager or, or any of my buddies like Gallagher who go there every single year. But on my two visits, it is simply indistinguishable to me with American eyes. What is an Arab and what is an Israeli and where do they live, except by sometimes conditions on the ground. But are the riots occurring in the mixed cities like Jaffa or are they occurring in predominantly Arab neighborhoods, as happened in Los Angeles when the rioting was primarily in yeah. South Central Los Angeles? I live in Jaffa, and it hasn't happened in Jaffa. There's a very massive police presence on the street. It's only happened in the mixed cities. And though you know a foreigner wouldn't be able to identify an Arab, say, you were all Israelis, but um, Israeli Jews and Arabs know who's a Jew and an Arabs. And I'll tell you honestly, I also know who's a Christian Arab. I know who's a Christian Arab, most of the women, because of the way they dress. Um, you know, Christian Arabs will dress in Western dress. Whereas Christian, uh, whereas, whereas Muslim Arabs won't, they wear a hijab uh, and cover their heads. So it's very easy to identify a Christian Arab from a from a Muslim Arab, but um, by dress, but um, or or by neighborhood. Again, we're, we're the apple pie; we're not the melting pie. Um, but most, of, almost all of this violence is taking place in the mixed neighborhoods, which had actually, which had actually been the sort of paragons of coexistence up, up to last week. Now, some of the violence has come from far-right Israeli citizens who are chanting slogans which are captured on social media, which are simply racist. How big is that number of people? Does that concern you as much as the Arab on Jew violence? Um, the number is always too big. If, if it's two people, it's too big. But uh, it, it, it's concerning. And, yes, we do have a, a, a radical uh, fringe in this country, actually, a member, uh, two members in Knesset, which is even disturbing. Um, who are who are racist? You know, we, I guess every country has a race has, has its racist. It's not to excuse it; it's just to recognize a fact. And um, and they can be very violent, and they can certainly uh, cause provocation. Um, and so much of this whole last round uh, of fighting um, can be traced back to violence between two radical fringes: radical Muslims beating up on Jews, and radical Jews beating up on Muslims in the old city of Jerusalem. Um, very disturbing. Now, two two members of Knesset means less than 2% of the population supports those people. I'm, I'm just going on rough proportionality. Secretary Clinton, when she was on the show a couple of years ago, put the number at 600,000 extremists in the United States, which sounds like a lot, but it's really 
again, that's the end of the tail of a typical bell curve on the right. Do you, but is yours growing? Is your radical right growing? Yeah. The entire right wing of this country is growing. Let me, I hope I have time to explain this. You do. We got 15 you know, minutes. Oh, okay. So here, here's how it looks. You know, in a, a, a quote unquote normal society, it looks like a triangle. And at the, the, the tip of the triangle, you have your industrial elite, you have your military commanders, and they tend to be, uh, they tend to be right wing. At your base, you have your youth, and the youth tend to be left wing. True? This is more or less the United States. Yep. This is Europe. Okay, Israel has that same triangle, but it's turned upside down. At the top, the, little, the, little, the tip of the triangle, you have our military elite and our industrial elite. In this country, they're left wing. And you notice how Israeli generals tend to be left wing? Yeah. Okay. Very, very interesting, right? Uh, our base is the youth, and our youth are right wing. And our youth are right wing for a very simple reason. Um, they don't remember, you know, Camp David. They don't remember Oslo Accords. They remember rockets. They remember suicide bombers. And you can't walk into a group of young Israelis and say, oh, let's talk about the two state solution, or let's talk about coexistence. They'll laugh you out of the room. Because they've been in the army, they've seen their kids killed. My ki my son, when we were living in Jerusalem, came to me and said, "You know, Abba, I've seen, I've had, I've been to more of my friends' funerals than I've been to their bar mitzvahs." And you know, that that deeply impacts uh, the political outlook of, outlook of these of these of the youngest people. Moreover, Israel has the largest per capita population under thirty of any industrialized society, because people in this country get married and they have kids. I'm six grandkids. <laughs> going. Yeah, and, you're ahead of uh, you're ahead of all of us. That's that's good. Oh, Congratulations. They get, get married here and they have kids. So and, and, then then so, explain so, to so me. We have a huge youth base, which is right wing. Which so explain all these parties in Connecticut that are running on the right. There's almost nobody running on the left. Then why is this coalition? I know it's all about Netanyahu, anti-Netanyahu. But is there really going to be a coalition? I read Ynet News this morning on the recommendation of our mutual friend. I read the Jerusalem Post. I read the Times of Israel. Everybody reports as though uh, the Arab Islamist Party will, in fact, support the center left with some right wing thrown in. That just doesn't compute with the triangle you just drew. Because, because even though even even though the triangle exists. It, most of the parties in the anti BB coalition are going to be uh, are going to be are going to be right wing, not left wing. Uh, so, what is your right or left? What is your prediction today? And I'm I don't know how much political news is mixed in with the military and the rioting news, but mm. what is your sense of the coalition talks and whether or not they will come to fruition, displacing Netanyahu from the prime minister's uh, desk? Well, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't tell you about the conspiracy theory, which is floating very, very prominently in Israel. Matter of fact, I just came from a discussion where serious people um, adhered to this uh, conspiracy theory that this entire round of fighting with Hamas is was engineered by Benjamin Netanyahu uh, to uh, take down Bennett and and uh, and uh, Gidon Sar. Why? Why does that work? Because it created a situation where the Arab parties had to come out in support of Hamas. And so Israeli right-wing parties could not join with those Arab parties in a coalition. And it even created a situation where those Arab parties couldn't join with any Jewish Zionist uh, parties. So that's the conspiracy theory. I, I think it's malarkey. Um, but it doesn't change the fact that what has happened in the last couple of days has redounded to Bibi's benefit. How? 
precisely that reason. It creates a situation where it's very difficult for Bennett and Saar to join with a party, an Arab party, that has supported Hamas. And it's very difficult for an Arab party, uh, which is looking at, say, at Palestinian uh, casualties in Gaza, to join with Bennett and Saar from the right wing. So it looks to me like we're going to a fifth round of elections. Now, yesterday or two days ago, Rahm's leader said, no cocks while the violence continues. Yesterday, he hedged it, according to one report I saw. They were so close, it looked like they were on the one-yard line. But the Cleveland Browns know about that. Any Browns fan knows that doesn't mean you touch his score, right? You can fumble. Right. Is the ball fumbled? Are we talking about the Iran nuclear deal? No, we're talking about the, the coalition. <laughs> oh, that one. I just, oh, the other the other explosive issue. Um yeah, they, I don't. I don't. I have no idea how close they are. But last time I heard that there are serious ideological differences. Uh, first of all, they have a number of uh, hurdles to overcome. But the biggest one now is: can they be supported, even outside the coalition, implicitly, uh, by an Arab party? Yeah. Um, wouldn't Bennett be done? Wouldn't every member of the government who joined with an Islamist party right now be done with the right wing forever? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what I told them. <laughs> this is months ago. I mean, basically, he has a choice between the head, being the head of Gamina, his party, or being the prime minister of Israel. And yes, it's true. If he becomes the prime minister of Israel, he's going to lose his base. Um, but maybe he'll get a new base, which is a, a sort of a more centrist base. Maybe people in the, the center of Israel, what's known as the, the, the Gush Dan, the greater Tel Aviv area, would be willing to vote for a person, even a person like Bennett, who wears a keep on his head, uh, if he was more moderate in his views. Um, it's a choice he has to make. Many of these parties are already thinking about the next election. So the example would be the, the party of, uh, um, of, uh, of the Religious Zionist Party, headed by a, a young, very talented gentleman named Betzalel Schmutrich. There's a mouthful, right? Betzalel Schmutrich, who would not – he basically denied Netanyahu the ability to form a coalition because he would not join a coalition that was supported by the Arab Islamic Party. Okay. Why would he not do that? Because he's only thinking about the next election. And he can go to the next elections and say, I would not go with this Arab Islamic party. And he could take away half to three quarter of Natalie Bennett's voters. Uh, interesting. Now, Michael, one thing I, I want to make sure the American audience hears, besides the title of your novel, To All Who Call in Truth, which I can pronounce, right. unlike the leader of the new religious party, I can say to all who call in truth seven times and they will then. the title comes from? No. Ah. Psalm 145, the Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. Beautiful line. It is. What what is the novel about? (laughs) Well, I tell you, the the plot is not what it's about. The plot plot is about a a junior high school uh, guidance counselor and football coach, a lot of football. You're going to love it. It's all about football. Uh, In a suburban American community in the year 1972. And that's, you know, what it's about. What it's about is about um, love, passion, betrayal, and murder. Yeah, Michael, when I was 25, not 65, I read Amos Oz. That's how I learned about Israel, by history books uh, about the Holocaust, the redemption of the unwanted, all that, you know, uh, the great histories uh, by Paul, uh, uh, the English historian, his name, Johnson. Yeah, Yeah, I read all that stuff. But Amos Oz taught me short stories, essays, and novels. He taught me about Israel. That that Israel doesn't exist anymore, does it? Part of it does. It's just changed, you know. But one of the things I'm writing about in this book in 1972 is, is a world 
that was lost. We, this world doesn't exist anymore. The world sort of adumbrates many aspects of our current situation. Because if you remember, 1972 was a very violent period in the United States. And, you know, we were young people, and we looked at what was going on on campuses and bombs going off and the Watergate scandal and thought, you know, America, its future is not so certain. And uh, I think that that sort of, in certain ways, presages uh, some of the feelings that Americans have today. It's also a book about a Jewish community, you know, and, and in the early 1970s, Jews were still an ethnic group. <laughs> They're not anymore, and uh, we're not anymore, uh, and, and a very distinct ethnic group. And it's about that world which was, has been lost as well. I'm looking forward to reading to all who call in truth. By the time we talk next week, I will have finished it. We can talk seriously about it. Let me go back to the American story, the second one I didn't cover with you. Andrew Yang wants to be mayor of New York. Unbelievably, he put out a statement of support for Israel yesterday and then had to walk it back. And then the mayor of New York had to apologize supporting Israel, Michael Oren. How different is that? It is different. It is different. And it's not, you know, it's not the America uh, that we knew. And uh, it's not the America, you know, that, that Israel can count on the same way. And when I came back uh, from Washington a couple of years ago, I, told, I met with, you know, Israel's military and civilian leaders. And I said, listen, we're pretty much on our own. America's going through a deep phase of uh, isolationism, whether it's, you know, Republicans or Democrats. And, uh, you know, when I was a young paratrooper and I was in Beirut in 1982, I knew that if we got into a jam that President Reagan was going to send the Marines to get us out of the jam. And, and he did, right? Twice. Um, today, the Marines aren't going someplace like so fast. I don't, you know, George Bush sent 600,000 American soldiers into the Middle East. Uh, today, can you imagine America no. sending that type of massive military power anywhere in the world almost under any pretext? Any pretext. No. We're going to fight the next war at sea. It's going to be at sea. Let me, before I run out of time, I got to ask you about Netanyahu and Gantz. Uh, last time there was a deadlock. We were stunned when Benny Gantz said, for the good of the country, I will join Netanyahu. He is now acting as defense minister. Is there any chance that the reverse happens that Netanyahu says, I'll be the defense minister. Benny, you become the prime minister. We'll put a rotation agreement together and we'll keep this government in place for this war. It's more than a chance. It's actually a danger. Um, again, I was just coming from a discussion on Israeli television. We're saying, you know, Bibi's big problem right now is not Bennett and Sorry, It's Benny Gantz. And they still have that rotation agreement. And if they go forward, perhaps without a new election, then Benny's going to be prime minister come October. Now, um, you know, how he works that out with Netanyahu, I don't know. But one of the conspiracy theories floating around here was that Gantz and Netanyahu together engineered this crisis with Hamas uh, in order to foil Bennett and uh, Saar and company because in Lapid, because in that uh, triumvirate, uh, you know, Ben Gantz was not going to be prime minister. Whereas if he stays with BB, he has a chance of being prime minister. So, you know, that's the crazy conspiracy theory, but, you know, it has a certain logic to it. So, so my um, last question, but, you've seen a lot of wars, you've seen a lot of prime ministers at wars, you've seen a lot of defense ministers at war, you've been in the room with them when there have been at wars. How is Netanyahu and Gantz doing this time compared to their past performances and that of past prime ministers and defense ministers? Well, because we've seen this war so many times already, okay? I've participated in a couple of them. Uh, the last three, I've, I've been too old. But, uh, and, and they're all they're all pretty much the same. Uh, they... How much shoots rockets at us? We bomb them from the air. If they continue shooting rockets at us, we eventually go in with some type of ground force, and there's a ceasefire. 
So it, it, you don't want to say it's not rocket science. That's a terrible joke. But it, it, we sort of more, more or less know the formula. And what, what has changed here is our capabilities. We are ability to, to look under the ground much more than we have in the past. We're much more accurate in our, in our aerial strikes. Uh, we've managed to kill a lot of Hamas leaders without killing uh, a lot of Palestinian civilians. We've really held down on the collateral damage. Uh, so our capabilities are, are improving. Their capabilities have improved somewhat. They've learned how to mass shoot rockets in a way that might overwhelm Iron Dome. I saw it happen in Tel Aviv tonight. Um, but, you know, we're winning that, that technological race, of course. So that's the only thing that, that really might tip the balance significantly in, in making this sort of a, a less prolonged conflict than we've seen in the past, because in the past it's gone on for weeks. Two other, to the very last question, Mike Lauren, because I know I'm running out of time, uh, to the former ambassador from Israel. Let me ask you about the, the, um, the possibility, the, the credibility of the idea that at this moment, because the Biden administration is so weak abroad, Tehran might decide to unleash the furies. And, and I go back to my last trip to Israel in the Camp David, in the uh, Hotel David, when someone told me, if there's going to be a war, we want it to be under Trump. Uh, now, it, if you're Tehran, you understand you've got the weakest United States administration known to be weak in terms of Iran. Are they not tempted in Tehran to unleash the dogs of war? No. No, because it's not, it's not in their interest right now. It's actually in our interest if they would. It would, it would be a dirty Harry moment. It would be, you know, go ahead, pull the trigger and make my day. I'm leaving out a word. But yep. uh, go ahead and pull the trigger and make my day because, um, you know, Iran's getting stronger. And if it gets the Iran nuclear deal back, it's going to get hundreds of billions of dollars that it's going to invest in rockets, not in schools. So time would not be working in our favor. Um, but, no, Iran has every interest in, in getting back to the JCPOA in adhering to the JCPOA, which will enable them legally to do 10 times what they're doing now illegally. Uh, you know, they'll do it legally under the JCPOA because all the, the restrictions will be lifted under the sunset clauses. And by that time, they'll have a, a functioning warhead. By that time, they'll have a ballistic system to carry the warhead. Uh, give them, they want seven years of quiet. And after well, seven years, that's when they'll come out. Wow. On that note, Dr. Michael Oren, we will talk again next week, and I will have read to all who call in truth by that time. I, I hope our – yeah, thank you. Thank you for joining us for an extended period. I appreciate your time this morning. Stay safe. Thank you. Thank you. Michael Oren, former ambassador of the United States from Israel, former deputy minister in the Netanyahu, last permanent government. We'll check in with him again next week. The book is To All Who Call in Truth. That concludes today's episode of The Interview with Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening. Make sure you come back and check out all the other podcasts on the Salem Podcast Network. And remember to thank our sponsors, andrewandtodd.com. If you believe in long-form interviews like I do, then do your real estate transactions with Andrew Del Rey and Todd Avakian. I've known both men for a long time. andrewandtodd.com. Go there, answer a couple of questions. They'll tell you what's best to do with your house or call them at 888-888-1172. You'll be glad you did and you'll be glad that you listened to the next episode of The Interview.